that you can get a better power ballad. I think it speaks for all of us, doesn't it? <laughs> if you've got love in your sights, watch out. Love bites. Agree? I tell you what, you're having a massive day quoting lyrics of popular songs, Wallace. This is, I, think it's a, I think it's a show in itself. This, of course, is a Def Leppard from the Hysteria album, which had single after single from perhaps one of the top ten albums of all time. Maybe, oh, the top, a, maybe a, in the top five. That's a big call. You've got your wow. Sgt. Peppers, you've got your Abbey Roads, Ooh, okay. and then you've got Hysteria. Is that right? Okay, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll have to have a debate about that off air. The album's goal, set out by producer Mutt Lang, was to be a hard rock version of Michael Jackson's Thriller, in that every track was a potential hit single, uh, and they weren't wrong. Uh, there's even a book about recording this album. And, of course, you're from Nelson, and you'd know this uh, uh, album, wouldn't you? I mean, they, it was so... <laughs> what stereotype are you trying to imply no, there, Wallace? It, wasn't. it was so big in Nelson, wasn't it, Anna? Can you recall that? Uh, I think it was a little bit before my time. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Oh, here we go. She's younger than us, Wallace. Here we go. Okay. A bit of ageism showing its ugly head. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I know I know what yeah. they look like. Yeah. 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 Hairy. Hairy. Oh, we've just hairy been aged. How to, we've how just to, been aged horrifically there, how Wallace. To ruin, how to ruin an anthem. Wow. Bring Paul, it down. Bring the, whole, Dean. bring the whole show down. <laughs> yes, we're old. Anna, yeah. thanks for reminding us. Um, I'm all a right. fan Fan of Glam Metal. <laughs> uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Uh, lovely to have your company. So that is the, our Power Ballad uh, Friday there, Love Bites by Def Leppard. And says, you said to keep it simple. And on a headstone I read, thanks, Dad. Oh, wow. Yeah, says it all, really. Brilliant. Yeah. 25 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. Now, concerned that your bosses are monitoring your productivity. You spend half the day reading trade and exchange in your, <laughs> in your office cubicle. You get pinged for it. Increasing productivity monitoring can be demoralizing, humiliating, and toxic, writes Professor Ananish Chowdhury in an opinion piece on the Auckland University website, who says that monitoring performance in blue-collar jobs has been ubiquitous for a while now, and it is spreading to white-collar jobs. With us is Ananish Chowdhury, a professor of experimental economics at Auckland University, taught at the Harvard Kennedy School Kia ora, it's lovely to have you on the programme. Kia ora, thank you so much, Wallace. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So tell, explain to us, what sort of monitoring are we talking about here? So, um, just to go back, so the piece actually originally appeared in the NBR and then was reproduced on the University of Auckland. I got you. So, uh, yeah, it's okay. Um, so, um, this has been true for... Um, Blue-collar jobs for a while, you know, Amazon, for instance, has real-time tracking of how many boxes you're packing. But now it's spreading to many white-collar jobs. So I quote a New York Times article that provides many examples. One that I found funny and sad was a hospice chaplain who said that she gets productivity points for calls she makes. So if you make a call to a dying uh, person's family member, you get some points. If you console a dying a person's family member, he gets some points. So, and she has to rack up a certain number of productivity points in doing some of these things. My gosh. That's just, well, what to say about that? That seems to run counter to a sort of a sensitivity chip that you'd hope everybody would have in that job anyway. Extraordinary. Keep going, Anani. Correct. Correct. So, uh, so that's why many people are saying that this is, this is kind of counterproductive, right? And um, please stop me anytime you want. Um, 
Uh, our fundamental problem with with this approach is that um, managers seem to think, or bosses often seem to think, that we are only motivated by purely extrinsic incentives, right? So purely carrots and sticks. But that is incorrect. Most of us are motivated by intrinsic motives, right? We donate blood. We give to charity. We help strangers, right? So so we uh, often, at least in the corporate uh, situation, I think we often underestimate these intrinsic motivations. You say that there is evidence that it destroys trust. Uh, uh, too much monitoring, uh, increasing monitoring, in fact, erodes Correct. that trust. Can you explain that a bit more uh, for us? Correct. So uh, you can think of this in uh, two different ways in some senses, right? So first is the kind of signal that you send, because these are very different signals. One signal says, or one message says, look, uh, I will trust you and please do the right thing. The other message says that, uh, no, no, I don't trust you, so I'm going to have closed circuit cameras. So maybe in retail stores, you know, I know that, you know, employees might steal things on their way out. So I'm going to put in closed circuit cameras to monitor people all the time. So automatically you're sending two different messages, which creates two different mindsets, right? And uh, the problem, of course, that I think we often ignore is that this monitoring is also quite costly. There's a cost to this. And therefore, if you even if you manage to reduce the bad behavior to some extent, many studies that I have done or others have done fine, that when you subtract out those costs, the net result is negative. It's not actually no, beneficial yeah. for the firm's bottom line. Let's bring our panel in, uh, Anish. Uh, Anna, you got uh, any thoughts and questions on this uh, issue of monitoring performance in uh, either blue-collar or white-collar jobs? Yeah, I mean, it... it, it, it it, it is quite creepy and it really um, kind of makes me feel like you're, it, the, the owners are always presuming somebody's going to be guilty. And I thought it was really interesting in your piece, Anish, uh, on how you asked um, how will the guards be guarded? You know, it's kind of creating, it feels like another tier of middle management or, or right. Um, right. I guess a lot of this, though, will be AI or kind of... Um, technology that that people will be getting used to monitor people in the future um i mean it makes me wonder how i would do my job i'm kind of concurrently working on so many different projects it would be right. impossible to kind of break them down and i really feel for people who are um working in these kinds of environments correct so you have made two ex- excellent points one is that in many jobs in many jobs, there are multiple dimensions to the job. We have to do various different things, and it is not necessarily easy to measure all those things, right? And therefore, what ends up happening is we measure some things typically because they're easier to measure, and we don't measure other things. But this, in economics, we say this often creates perverse incentives because I will now do the things you're measuring, and I will not mm. do the things you're not measuring, right? Yeah. For instance, yeah. keep going. If you, sorry, if you say that, um, so let's say I will pay a salesperson only based on the commission, 
then that person has no longer has a lot of incentive to talk to people who do not appear to be immediate buyers. Mm. Right. Here's an interesting, very interesting text here on a nation uh, panel. In my white-collar workplace, constant monitoring of productivity leads to employees here avoiding complex tasks, as these can impede outputs. Yeah, and, and how do you measure someone thinking? Like, if you're in a job that requires some logistical sort of thing in your brain, how do you, how do you monitor someone sitting there looking at their computer screen going, hmm, how am I going to do this? Exactly, exactly. So, for instance, if you are, I mean, even the New York Times article, I believe, talked about it. So, um, they talked about um, people who are doing things like online tutoring, etc. And it's really measuring the number of minutes you're logged into the computer, which means if you're taking some time to think or some time to write things, none of those is being measured, right? And and as I said, two, two things are true. One is that, um, see, one a fundamental problem, I think, is that we s- seem to think that most people will shark given the chance. And oh, right. we must use a stick for most people. But that is not true. From many, many studies we know, yes, um, there are people who shark, but they're usually a minority. Mm. And therefore, you might as well go after them rather than have a stick or a monitoring, costly monitoring system that monitors everyone. Yeah, if people are quite interested in this uh, productivity points issue. Um, uh, Liz is a hospital chaplain. She says productivity points is not a thing in the New Zealand hospital chaplaincy circles. The idea go, would go against every code of conduct in the profession. Um, but just, just finally, Ananesh, I mean, do not yes. employers have some right to know what you're doing, where you are? It could protect both parties, employer and employee. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Nobody is saying that you shouldn't be monitoring. But what I think has happened is an expanding managerial culture that monitors to a point where it's become significantly counterproductive. And when you treat everyone with suspicion, most people start to feel alienated and at times you might get compliance with some behavior, but sometimes you get what's called vicious compliance. I'll do it, but I'll do it very grudgingly. And all of those right. things are detrimental to long-term productivity. Very nice to have in the program, uh, Professor Chowdhury. Uh, interesting stuff, isn't it? It is. Uh, are, yeah. your, are your bosses listening now? They're counting the number of impertinent questions you're asking? Well, I'm just, um, my productivity points are coming through right now. And <laughs> How are you doing? I, am, oh, that's not, I can see your screen. That's yeah, nasty. It's not, oh, my gosh. I can Wallace, do better. I can do better. Can do better. Uh, and speaking uh, of doing better, someone says, uh, Anna Dean has just deaf leopard shamed the other two guests. Uh, horrifically. Yeah. Horrifically. Yeah. Uh, now, I must read these two out. Thank you for um, uh, texting me in. This is uh, from Kate uh, Wallace. I've loved hearing all the positive memories about listeners' fathers. However, sadly, there are many people who've either never known their fathers or whose fathers don't want anything to do with them. Please acknowledge them and their pain. Now, Mihinui says Kate. 100% there are. And a lot of people that step into the um, mums, you know, other, other, you know, other family members that step in and fill that void. 100%. Yeah. Wayne says, not all fathers are wonderful for good reasons. I didn't speak with mine for 25 years. He died 
and I went to his funeral. I saw him in his open casket, ironically, on Father's Day. I cursed him. I, however, am a wonderful father, and I broke the cycle. Fair play to you, then, yeah. because that is a tough thing to do. So fair play to you, mate. 16 to 5, the panel, Anna Dean and Andrew Clay with me uh, this afternoon. Well, the All Blacks are hoping to once again ease mounting pressure when they play Argentina and Hamilton this weekend. Last weekend's history-making loss to the Pumas in Christchurch gave the New Zealand side six losses from their last eight matches and sent them back to a record low of fifth in the world rankings. Now, one very interesting perspective came from Gregor Paul, he's writing on the New Zealand Herald, that the All Blacks' problems can be traced back to schoolboy rugby and that bash and smash is the default setting for a generation who haven't been taught game management or strategic thinking. So we thought we'd get a Manoj Daji uh, and former CEO. He's a former CEO of the New Zealand College of Sport. He received the Queen's Service Medal for services to sport. Manoj, kia ora. Good to have you on the panel. Hi, how are you? Very well, Manoj. So... What do you think of this? You've actually talked to some involved in teaching programs. On the back of that, this comment and piece, what are they saying? Um, I'll, I'll start by saying it's an extremely long bow to draw. Yeah, and totally I'll, agree. I'll give you three points. I'll give you three points uh, that I'd like to make. The first one is we've got to stop seeing schools as high-performance sports environments. Schools are fundamentally and clearly and primarily learning establishments. The key focus for all headmasters and principals in schools in New Zealand is teaching and learning and educating students. Should be, should be, but they're not. Well, absolutely, but hence why sport is considered extracurricular activity by definition. So I think, number one, we've got to stop seeing schools as something that they're not. The second thing I would say to you is that we've got, for the last 20 years in New Zealand, we've had an extracurricular teacher-slash-coach shortage. And all codes, not just rugby, would seriously benefit if more teachers are coached in school environments. And um, that's, that's the problem that we've all got to try and, and do our bit to help with. And the third thing I'll say is that the success of our, um, our elite teams in sports in, in this country in the last five or six years depends on the quality of two things. The identification um, and development work done by, I believe, the provincial bodies and then the national bodies of codes. So it's no coincidence that the All Blacks are performing poorly when our feeder team, the under-20s, are not winning their respective competitions. Hockey, as an example, doesn't have a New Zealand A or a strong under-21 program at the moment. As a result, the results that you saw at the Commonwealth Games can reflect that. Okay, and then we look at cricket. Yeah, we look at cricket on the other side of that. It's New Zealand Cricket's A program that's been in place since David White's reign at New Zealand Cricket has been a super success. In that group of the New Zealand A program, first-class cricket players uh, are playing in that and playing against international opposition. So when they make the transition to the top side, the Black Caps, you know, the rest is history. We've done pretty damn well. So the other three things that I'd say is a right. really long, uh, long bow to draw. Andrew, I know you're you're jumping, to, you're, you're, no. keen, you're keen to get it yeah. because you're a, a youth coach yourself. But Anna Dean, first, I mean, Anna, did you play uh, any sport at school? Or what do you make of this? Uh, I played I played netball, yes. Um, no interest really in in rugby, and am really or grateful. 
<laughs> that so many different sports have come through, you know, in the in the years, uh, in the recent years, like our basketball performances, and you know, there's there's all sorts of elite um, sports people out there, and I'd love to hear conversations around the black ferns more, um, because uh, yeah, it's there's so much chat about the All Blacks and and that piece with the smash and grab and schoolboy rugby. I was like, wow, gosh, it felt like the eighties. Minaj. <laughs> Oh, look, I, I agree. I, I just think we're overdoing it and we're, we're making it at something it's not. And I think it's super unfair um, to, you know, highlight and make that something um, that it's not, for the kids especially, because they're not mature enough at 16 and 17 to be getting too much media exposure for a start. I mean, that's, mm. that's one of the things that I would like to, to not see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, this, this, this is multifaceted. Um, yeah, the, by, a coach is another name for a teacher. Uh, the results should be, yeah, they get, at first I think they become important, but you still should be teaching that, the game, you know, ahead of the results at that point, but it's not like that. This is the unintended consequence of what happened 10 years ago when they started to film First 15 uh, rugby. That's one thing. The other thing I have to say, though, when is... When they started filming First 15 rugby, you think that's part of it? Yeah, because it became, it became that they narrowed the base of uh, people who weren't making those schools going to those right schools, you know, uh, stopped playing or stopped trying hard to be a good player. So there's all sorts of things that go on. And you do get, you're going to pick, especially in a game like rugby, the bigger, stronger person because they're going to win you the game that weekend rather than the one that might develop later who might have better game understanding or better technique. Having said that, I think, you know, is there any any empirical evidence that the All Blacks now losing because their technique has dropped or their game understanding has dropped? I don't know that there is. I think there might be a journalist going, well, it's... Got, uh, I got. It's time to take a free swing at the All Blacks here because this is uh, this is some good stuff. So they'll, you know, they're going to go. Oh, it's it's the schoolboy. It's the development. Oh, yeah, is it? Well, you know, we won a World Cup not so long ago. In fact, we won two. Was it? Has it got that much worse than the last Minaj? half dozen years? Look, I, I would say uh, this: the the, the school in the country that has produced the most All Blacks over time has been Auckland Grammar School. So if you look closely at the last nine years, they've had two hundred and twenty-five or so boys representing the first fifteen. Only five or so boys, uh, and I might be a little bit incorrect there, but only around five out of the 225 have gone on to Super Rugby. So that, that statistic hasn't changed over a long period of time. Yet why are we saying that this is, you know, it's the, it's the schools to blame? It's got nothing to do with the schools. As I said, at the end of the day, the cream rises to the top. When those good players from those schools enter club football or, or play in, the, in Super Rugby, the job then to develop them and identify them and do all the right things to prepare them to be international sports people lies with the provincial body and the national um, and the national body. So I think the schools do a bloody great job and they should be commended. And it's a big part of our sporting landscape. You know, it's so good. good work done yeah. in schools. It's so good to have you on, Manoj. I really appreciate your, uh, your your comments on this. Just finally, before you, we let you go, um, this weekend, what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got no prediction. Right. I'm not a. I'm not a. And I'm not a massive rugby freak. Um, <laughs> um, rugby freak No, no. The All Blacks. Are, all Blacks going to win Good because the schools had it right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Manoj, uh, Manoj Daji there, uh, the former CEO of the New Zealand College uh, of Sport. On that, it's nine to five. The panel, lovely to have you company. By the way, I'm away next week. I'm on a family break, uh, so. Um, uh, Karen Hay will be taking over for the week next week. Uh, Sigrid, uh, your wonderful father's comments keep coming. My dad died September the 2nd, 26 years ago. 
today. Just before his 83rd birthday, Father's Day was on Sunday, the 1st of September, and I was so thankful that I had baked his favourite peanut cake, visited him that evening to celebrate the day and tell him how much I loved him. The next day he died suddenly of a heart attack. Finally on the program, veteran female journalist has not had her contract renewed reportedly because she let her hair go naturally grey during the pandemic. Lisa Laflamme said it was not her choice to leave. Bell Media, which owns CTV, said the narrative was incorrect but declined to provide the real reasoning behind it. Support for Lisa Laflamme includes journalist Kate Courage and former CTV host Danielle Graham, who brought forth a gender discrimination claim. A campaign has been launched. It's called Aging is Beautiful. David Ivani is so fired up, he started a Facebook group called Stand Up for Lisa Laflamme, Boycott CTV. I spoke to him just before the show. So Lisa has been uh, really the uh, prime co-host, or not co-host, host of uh, CTV for uh, 12 years after Lloyd Robertson left. And um, she was, she's won many awards. Uh, she's the, the only anchor that I've known that has ever won any award. Um, and I'm so proud of her because, you know, being a woman to win an award is hard these days. Never mind being a man to win an award. Uh, you have to work very hard to win anything anymore. You know, you just have to jump over backwards. And uh, Lisa did everything she could do. And she did, went out of her way to do anything she could to help people. Uh, she was the most loving, the most caring. Uh, I've never met her personally, but people that I've known that have met her told right. me that she's the most caring, loving people person that you could ever meet. So you're a big she fan. She out of her way to do anything mm. for anyone. What's the backdrop to the issue, David? I really, you know, really, it's just all about gray hair. Uh, in my opinion, they're saying it's not. She's got gray hair, uh, you know, and uh, she's aging, and she let her hair go gray. And in my opinion, you know, it doesn't matter if you're bald, you're gray. You people are graying at 25 these days, for God's sake. You know, it doesn't matter if you're graying. You know, you are who you are, right? We speak on what we speak on and what we believe in. And, you know, I believe in, you know... Right is right and wrong is wrong. You know, you have a, a contract, you know, and somebody will break a contract, uh, Mulling, uh, Michael Mulling, uh, broke her contract. Um, she had two years left. Yep. And just uh, was, I hushed her and told her to be quiet. And uh, more or less is what I was told by friends also that know her personally. And uh, told her, just shut up. Don't say anything. Yeah, so you know, she, to me, that's communism. She did, say, communism. She did say it was um, not her uh, a choice to leave. But look, Bell, oh. Bell Media have come out and said, this is just incorrect, David. It's not about grey hair. It is not about that. They haven't yeah, given it, the reasons for it. Of course they're going it. to say that. Of course they're going to say that. They're trying to stand up. But, you know, as you can see, Michael, if you didn't know, Michael Melling has left. Michael Melling has left on leave now. But how can you be so? so um, how can you be so sure it's about uh, her deciding to go grey naturally during the pandemic? Well, I'm going to say it is uh, because I mean she was going grey. Uh, you know, you watch it as we were watching the news as as the pandemic was continuing. She was uh, you know working from home some days, so you could see the blonde going to grey. And after a while, you know, it, it just, uh, and she stood up to CTV, is what I was told, and told her to mind her own business on what she wants to, you know, how she wanted to be. You know, I am who I am.
you know? Um, and that's what I was told is with my friends. So uh, whether that's true or not, I mean, all I can tell you is that, in my opinion, you know, she did that nothing wrong to be let go. Not she was just let go because of gray hair. And, uh, you know, she had an outing or an uh, argument with um, Michael uh, Melling, and uh, he wanted to make it look good, and he just made it because he was the top executive, and he said, you're fired, you're done. Okay, so there is now you know, a, p- a petition, uh, there's, a, there's a campaign, you know, it's called Aging is Beautiful. You've set up a Facebook page. There's another petition on change.org. What is the, in your opinion, what is the wider issue here? Do, is it, David, that we need to um, value people's um, stages and ages and careers in either the media or otherwise? You know, it doesn't matter if we're a journalist. It doesn't matter who we are. Uh, I'm 60 years old myself. Uh, you know, I'm, we're, we're all age. It doesn't matter who we are. You know, it's what, it's what you have to give out to the world. Uh, I myself believe in love, respect, and honesty. Love is what gets us through this world. Love is no longer in this world. I mean, there is still love, yes. But the love that we knew that we knew when I was young, much younger... It's not around anymore as we look at war, and we don't need to discuss that matter. But I'm just saying, you know, there, you know, today is much more different than 10 years ago, as 10 years from now will be much different than it is today. I mean, the way the world is getting is all about me, me, me. It's not about caring about anybody but themselves. It's, what can I, it's not what I can do for you anymore. It's what can I do for myself. Aging is beautiful. Well, not in my case, it's not. But, you well, know, exactly, yeah, but uh, Anadine... <laughs> Got to love those super fans, don't you? It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, speaking yeah. of fantastic, um, Facebook, whoa, 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 speaking of fantastic, hello, oh, Jeff oh, hello, Leopard. here it is. I can uh, hear it. I can. It's building. It's building. <laughs> Anna Zine, Andrew Clay, you've been fantastic. Pleasure, Wallace. See you the week after next. I'm Wallace Chapman. A huge thank you to my wonderful producer Ayana. Have a great weekend, Lisa Owen. The checkpoint next. <laughs>